Hi, I'm Mark Rodman. Coming up, President Biden unveils his infrastructure plan. We'll get the latest from the General Assembly and the gun control debate reignites next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with Carolina Journal, communications consultant Donna King, political analyst Joe Stewart, and Nelson Dollar, senior advisor to North Carolina Speaker House. Mitch, why don't we begin with President Biden's new spending plan? Not long after winning support for a $1.9 trillion plan to deal with COVID-19 relief, the president pivoted to his big infrastructure plan, part of the building better, building back better plan that he put forward. We had initially heard reports that this could be as high as $3 trillion. As it turns out, the plan that was unveiled in Pittsburgh this week was well more than $2 trillion. It deals with things like roads, waterways, and airports, but also the electric grid, and also dealing with things like uh, broadband. And it's being touted by the president as something akin to the New Deal or the space race, a major investment. It would take up about 1% of the gross domestic product for the next eight years. And part of the plan is some tax increases to go along with it. A tax increase on the corporate side from 21% to 28%, along with individual tax increases for households making $400,000 or more. One of the key parts of the debate right now is, could the president get this plan through Congress if Republicans are united against it, as they seem to be? He doesn't have much room to work with on the Democratic side. Nancy Pelosi can afford to lose only three Democrats to pass it through the House. They'll need every Democratic senator to pass it, and at least a couple of them, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, have been skeptical about tax increases. You know, that's a great point, Joe. Do you think the moderates are on board with this plan? I don't think they're there yet. You know, these types of spending packages have a tendency to be full of tutti-frutti bubble gum when what you actually need is a couple box of chiclets. And so hopefully Congress will see the wisdom of parsing back on some of these big spending items and come up with a package that moderate Democrats can agree to that don't necessitate such large tax increases. I think they're all thinking about 22 and not wanting to go and talk to the voters about how they made it more expensive uh, in terms of tax increases, despite what may have been some of the beneficial projects for their particular district or home state. Donna, critics say this is a Trojan horse for the, uh, the Green New Deal. That's what they're saying, and I think that that is a, there's some legitimacy to that. There's a lot of groups uh, within Congress right now. You know, of course, in the Senate, he can only lose one, and this whole thing is hijacked. And in the House, only three. Nancy Pelosi doesn't have uh, much of a margin for, for error. And already there's a Problem Solvers Caucus uh, made up of sort of a bipartisan Republicans and Democrats. And most of them are saying they cannot stomach a, a tax increase. They're just not going to do it. And they're also saying that they want to see the SALT tax, the state and 
local uh, uh, deduction reinstated. So there's a lot of moving parts for this. So it may seem like on paper it's, uh, you know, a lot of bells and whistles, uh, but it's going to have a heavy lift and some pretty big headwinds on Capitol Hill. Nelson, this is just the first installment. He's being very, uh, he's been encouraged to go very big, isn't he? Yes, and it used to be tax and spend, and now it's going to be spend and tax. So the policy doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Federal Reserve just uh, announced GDP growth rates for the year up to 6.5%, lowering their estimate of unemployment down to 3.9% for 2022. The Fed's also committed to keeping uh, rates near zero with an inflation expectation of about 2.4%. So conditions are perfect for robust economic recovery, except Biden and Congress are responding to this news by flooding the economy with trillions more in government borrowing and spending and pledging, as Mitch said, to raise taxes. I mean, corporate taxes, raising the global minimum tax rate, increasing capital gains taxes, energy taxes, higher taxes on many of your small businesses, LLCs and S-Corps, and of course, uh, increasing the marriage tax penalty for higher earners. So what this is is a recipe for throttling back the private sector investment while creating monetary inflation. Uh, this does not end well. Okay, I will continue to follow this. I want to move on, come right back to you, Nelson. Let's talk about the General Assembly's week, my friend. It was a very busy week at the General Assembly in the run-up to the legislature's uh, Easter break. Two major pieces of uh, education legislation passed this week, uh, House Bill 82, uh, the Summer Learning Choices for NC Families, sponsored by Speaker Moore, uh, and Senate Bill 387, uh, the Excellent Public Schools Act of 2021, sponsored by Senate President Pro Tem uh, Phil Berger. So the two leaders are, are front and center on education this week. Uh, we also had in the House the Emergency Powers Accountability Act. That was passed on a party line vote. But what the bill would do was clarify the role of the Council of State, the statewide Council of State, their statewide elected officials, in issuing and maintaining uh, statewide emergency declarations. So a governor can't necessarily keep one going for uh, very long periods of time. You also had a press conference by uh, some Democrat members uh, introducing uh, Senate Bill 439, which is Hate Crimes Prevention Act. That legislation mirrors some that they've introduced in prior sessions that would make hate crimes an actual felony and establish a statewide hate crimes uh, database and training both for law enforcement and for prosecutors. Will that get a fair hearing, you think? Well, it's, it's a very contentious issue. I do think that, it, that elements of the legislation may be wrapped into a broader uh, comprehensive bill on racial justice issues uh, that were studied uh, both by the okay. governor and attorney general and uh, by the legislature. Donna, what have you been following? Well, of course, I was really glad to see a focus on education as a parent and, uh, with a student in public school. I'm really concerned about, you know, summer learning. And this is something we really have to be looking forward to as we, we don't have a lot of time for these kids to catch up after having missed a year of school. But, of course, for a lot of folks, it's also all about the pocketbook. Uh, the Senate has introduced the Tax Relief and Recovery Act, which lowers, well, it increases the standard deduction, increases the child, dedu child deduction, uh, and also lowers in individual income taxes. So that will be watched very closely. 
obviously. I know that uh, Republicans and Democrats have all said they want to make sure to get resources in the hands of, of North Carolinians. What that looks like depends on what side of the aisle you're on. Uh, but the governor has said that Medicaid expansion, which has slowed the process down significantly over the last year or two, may not necessarily have to be tied uh, to the budget to get a budget through. So that was good news coming from the executive mansion. Uh, certainly an exciting time to be there uh, at the General Assembly. Joe, weigh in here, please. Interesting, uh, the leadership in both the House and Senate among the Republican chairs of the requisite health committees, looking at a lot of the things that we learned through COVID, one that's interesting to me is the uh, telehealth, making it possible for people to have an interaction with a medical provider using technology such as this. Uh, it, some discussion and debate about how you structure that appropriately in the context of insurance and reimbursement rates and such. But it is one example of something we learned from the terrible situation of COVID that some people, either because of the condition that they suffer from or just the lack of access to a particular medical provider, are well served having that interaction with a doctor through this, this sort of technology, through a video conference. We'll have some refinements to make on it, but that might be one good thing that comes out of this very bad situation. Mitch, put this in context and close this out in about 40 seconds, my friend. Nelson, I think, mentioned the most important items, which were the education bills and also the emergency powers bill. And I think one of the interesting things is the contrast here on stuff that can be bipartisan and probably get support from Governor Cooper and the issues that are going to be contentious between Republicans and Democrats. That emergency powers bill is something that the General Assembly probably in the past would have passed almost unanimously, saying we are the dominant branch and we need to continue to be the dominant branch. But now with the polarized uh, Republicans versus Democrats in the legislature and also with the executive branch. You'll probably see a lot of Democrats vote against this to support okay. their governor, even though the General Assembly should be the dominant branch. Donna, we've had a lot of tragedy lately. Back-to-back -back shootings, actually three now, have reignited the gun debate. It really has. And I think, um, you know, the uh, policy on gun control when, when Democrats took over Capitol Hill, I think people were expecting some, but certainly that process was accelerated with shootings in Atlanta and in Boulder. Uh, so now we're seeing much more legislation coming forward. The Senate's Dianne Feinstein has introduced an, a ban on a 205 different types of weapons, uh, particularly ones that have a magazine of 10 rounds. It's sponsored by 34 other Democrats. So we're going to see uh, more of that moving forward. It has not move, moved forward into the Senate very much, but it does um, It does require that these, all, the, these legislations be listed and that you can't transfer them without an FBI background check. The House has moved two pieces of legislation. One of them is a bipartisan background check, and it, require, it would criminalize private gun sales without a background check. So we're seeing this House and the Senate both moving things. There's been some rumor that President Biden perhaps might use uh, his executive authority to implement some sort of gun control measure. So uh, that seems to be scaling down as more movement hap happens on Capitol Hill. But one common ground you might see is some of these red flag laws. Uh, we're seeing some Republicans and some Democrats both saying they can get on board with red flag laws. Of course, those are uh, expanding permission for family members and local authorities uh, to take people who might be in a compromised mental state or something like that to uh, confiscate guns in that way. So there's been some middle of the road there, but we are seeing a lot more legislation on the Hill. Mitch, does the NRA still have the G's they once had, say, a decade ago? Probably not the, the amount of uh, authority and perspective that they had a decade ago, and that's partly because of some problems within the NRA itself. The interesting thing to me about this, though, is the fact that 
Every time there's a major shooting, you see calls for gun control on Capitol Hill, but we're also still just not too far removed from the days of riots in the streets. And so there are a lot of people who are still interested in the Second Amendment and making sure people can protect themselves. We see this play out in at least a dozen states where legislatures are talking about nullifying any new gun control measures that come from Capitol Hill. So if gun control moves forward, there could be some pushback. Do we think that some of this will go to, let's say Biden does an executive order, uh, Joe, would that go to the Supreme Court and be challenged, do you think? Well, I think it probably will be. There will be, as Mitch and Donna both mentioned, there are people with strong feelings on both sides of this issue. And it's one of those challenging public policy matters. And, and in truth, there are a lot of facets to this that need to be addressed, not the least of which is to ensure that the provision of mental health services is widely available, something a lot of states, and particularly North Carolina, is working on to make sure people that are having difficult times who might be prone to violence have access to a mental health service that ensures them the appropriate and proper treatment. Not that that will forestall every incident like this where the person is uh, suffering from some mental uh, condition, but at least let us consider the many different things we need to do to address these acts of violence that aren't necessarily just about the gun. You know, I think that's right, Joe. You know, a lot of times, Nelson, that the politicians run to the camera every time and nothing ever gets done. What's happening in the General Assembly in respect to gun control? Well, I think that there have been issues um, addressed with respect to gun control within the General Assembly. You've seen a number of bills uh, introduced. I do think that the action will probably be on Capitol Hill, where the Biden administration and Congress uh, will want to act on the issue of, of gun violence. And certainly the question is, can Second Amendment uh, advocates uh, compromise uh, so that you do focus on potential shooters rather than outlawing semi-automatic weapons? Uh, the red flag bill that uh, Donna mentioned, Senate Bill 292, that's been sponsored by Senator Marco Rubio uh, out of uh, Florida. Um, uh, so these issues sometimes are very uh, controversial, but polling is also showing that okay. uh, some of the measures do enjoy broad public support. Joe, looks like Trump's gearing up for another run or at least to be very influential in 2022. He and his allies are really cranking up the fundraising machine. Now that's absolutely right. Former President Trump is like the proud parent of triplets. He's got three babies that he's got to raise. The first baby's money. And President Trump was a prolific fundraiser for the Republicans during his time in the White House. Record dollar amounts raised uh, as a result of solicitations that came from the president. The second baby's friends and allies used the first baby to have influence over elections in the midterm 2022 and create relationships that are important to you politically as you might consider a run for president in 2024 so that you have folks that you supported in their election supporting you in your effort. And the third baby really is making sure that you carpe every diem. As a former president, there's some political status that Donald Trump will enjoy, but taking the opportunity to either point out where he feels the Biden administration is coming up short or that there are international events or economic activities that he can point to to distinguish himself. Now, the challenge with these three babies is the other side has babies, too, and not the least of which is Democrats that will continue to try to poke holes in the history of the Trump administration and the various things that will come out now as a result of the president having left the White House. And the second baby that is fighting the triplets is really any other Republican who might want to consider running for president in 2024. We'll see how all these babies do over time, but 
Uh, my, my sense of it is that Donald Trump is very serious about putting together the organizational structure necessary to run for president again in 2024. He's brought together a team, including Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff, and they're going about this in a very deliberative and straightforward way. I agree with that. What impact do you think Mitch Trump will have on the 2022 elections? I mean, in the off year, uh, the party out of power usually wins back the House. They usually do, and I think uh, President Trump's going to have a major impact. He certainly has set up within the past week this new uh, website, 45office.com, that's going to keep his name even in, more in the headlines than he would be otherwise. People are going to be uh, aligning themselves with Donald Trump, trying to distance themselves. The Democrats will try to tie any Republican to Trump, hoping that middle-of-the-road voters will be turned off. So he's going to have an impact in one way or the other. Right now, I think it's hard to say how that impact's going to play out. A lot of this will come down to the economy, won't it, Nelson? Well, I think it will. And I think that uh, the choices that the Biden administration are making and Congress are making with their tax and spend policies uh, may not wear very well in the off-year election. Uh, and, of course, the other issue that um, uh, Trump is dealing with or is his relationship with the Republican National Committee. And uh, he actually made a request that the RNC and the senatorial and House campaign committees stop using his likeness and name in appeals. So it's going to be a, a, a quite uh, the interesting structure uh, heading into 2022, which would no, you would normally think would be a very um, strong year for Republicans. John, to close this out in about 40 seconds, put it in context, please. Sure. I think at the end of the day, people are uh, still kind of reeling from 2020, from the elections, from COVID and all those things. They're seeing gas prices go up. Perhaps they haven't seen what they wanted out of the White House and the and Capitol Hill that they were hoping that they were go going to see. Uh, those who were on the fence going into the 2020 election might be looking at 2022 as an opportunity uh, to bring back some balance to what they were hoping would be the ticket in Washington. And so I think that will serve uh, Republicans. But you can, any Republican that distances themselves from Donald Trump really does so at their own peril. He's got quite a machine, uh, social media, marketing, and of course, fundraising. Okay, let's move on to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. It's been well reported that the polling shows Republican men make up the demographic that's least likely and interested in getting the COVID-19 vaccine. But a couple of high-profile Republicans have come out to try to say, okay, Republican men, go ahead and get that shot. We saw that Mitch McConnell, who's the leader of the Senate Republicans on Capitol Hill, has said that people should get the vaccine. In North Carolina, the chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party, Michael Watley, told reporters that he's ready to get his shot and encouraged everyone to go ahead and get that shot as soon as they are eligible. So we see some action from members of the demographic that is seen as least likely to want the vaccine to encourage people to go ahead and do it. Donna, underreported. Uh, so uh, underreported, I think, is a, it was a real loss for my family. Beverly Cleary, uh, she passed away. Her books, she sold 90 million books and passed away at over 100 years old this week. She will certainly be missed. And, and I hope her books stay in paper book form for all of our kids to be reading. Joe, underreported? Yeah, Chuck Schumer, uh, senator from New York, uh, the leader of the Democrats in the U.S. Senate, announced that he plans to spend the congressional spring recess back in New York doing retail campaigning. Now, you think of someone in that position, a real powerful leadership position in Congress, being in solid standing. But I think Schumer recognizes the divisions within the Democratic Party. He's got to spend some time back home making sure his left flank is not exposed as he looks for his own reelection campaign coming up this next cycle.
Do you think it might be AOC challenging him, sir? I think that's probably what's motivating this more than anything. But if it's not AOC, it may be some other more progressive left-wing Democrat who's looking to challenge Schumer in the election. You know, that, that's really uh, something that we rarely see with a leader of that stature. Well, you go back to Eric Cantor, who was Republican majority leader in the right. U.S. House, faced a challenge from the right flank and lost his race. And so I think they're always in leadership positions, both parties, keeping an eye out to make sure they don't forget things back home to their own peril at the next election. Nelson, underreported? Uh, the filibuster is misunderstood. The U.S. Senate operates by unanimous consent, meaning that motions move forward as long as a senator doesn't object. So if one or more places a hold on a proceeding, debate can, doesn't place a hold on proceedings, debate continues uh, until there is an agreement reached or a closure motion offered. So the standard for closure uh, wasn't established till 1917 at about two thirds of the Senate's voting. Uh, it was lower to three fifths uh, in 1975, which is essentially 60 votes. Now in 2013, Senate uh, leader Harry Reid lowered closure for presidential appointments to a simple majority. And then later Senate leader Mitch McConnell extended that to Supreme Court nomination. So if closure is changed to a simple majority for all motions, the Senate will cease to exist as the world's greatest deliberative body. It will become far more captive of the House, especially when both are controlled by one party. And that would essentially end the Senate's original role of protecting the rights of the minority. Biden has signaled, hasn't he, Nelson, that he wants some sort of reform. Uh, he has signaled some sort of reform. There's been a lot of discussion, but if they move for reform, they really threaten the purpose of the Senate and the power of the individual senators in the body. And I think a number of the Democrat senators are thinking twice about that. Okay, the keys on that are the two senators, Cinema from Arizona and, um, and Manchin from West Virginia. Yes, sir, I think they're the two key senators uh, but you've also seen some other Democrat senators in the background talking about backing away and not pressuring Schumer to make a change. I do think this relates to a potential primary for okay. Schumer uh, from the left. Okay, let's go to lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? Who's up? The operators of charter schools. We saw a bill that moved through a House Education Committee that would force public school systems to pay a penalty, 5% perhaps, if they don't uh, get the money to the charter schools that's due to those charter schools on time. That actually got a unanimous voice vote in the House Education Committee, so that's interesting to see. My who's down? Gerald Heggie, the former Davidson County Sheriff. You remember he ran into legal troubles, had to plead guilty, but then after he did his time, he ran for office again. A lot of people said that was a bad idea. We actually passed a constitutional amendment that said felons couldn't run again for sheriff if they have been felons. There's a bill in the General Assembly now that would say, hey, you can't even do this if you get your felony expunged. Gerald Heggie's name didn't come up, but he was the one they were talking about. Donna, who's up and who's down this week? Uh, up, I'm going to say uh, folks who want to have their kids and teenagers uh, vaccinated. Uh, Pfizer has said that they found that their vaccine is effective and safe in adolescents. It's not quite approved for 
for those under 16, but it looks like that might be coming down the road. Down, I'm going to say proponents of the Second Amendment. Uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in California ruled this week that uh, states may restrict open carry laws uh, and not be, not be um, uh, running afoul of the Second Amendment. Joe, who's up and who's down this week, my friend? Who's up? The conference board released the latest findings for the Consumer Confidence Index and saw the greatest leap, almost 20 points upward since 2003. We're still over 20 points down in terms of consumer confidence since the start of COVID-19, but it bodes well if American consumers are feeling slightly more confident about the economy. Who's down? Uh, interestingly enough, moderates in Congress, principally those Democrats who feel a little neglected by the Biden administration, uh, Ron Klain, the chief of staff, has been meeting with the more progressive wing, AOC, and some of the others uh, in the Democratic caucus in the House, much to the chagrin of those Democratic moderates who say, hey, don't neglect us. But I'm afraid one of the sad tales of being a moderate is you have a tendency to be taken for granted all the time. Well, they're not getting an audience with the president, are they? No, and I think it's it's probably a keen observation. If Biden just assumes that those Democrats in the middle have nowhere to go, they're going to have to support the uh, administration and all of its legislative proposals. I think they'll probably remedy this, and there will be some high-profile meetings. But it does show the fracture within the Democratic Party. He who's up and who's down this week, Nelson? Uh, who's up? Catherine Ty, the new U.S. Trade Representative is the only Biden official to gain unanimous confirmation so far. Her parents grew up in Taiwan, and she has recently announced potential new tariffs on EU countries over digital service taxes and is in no hurry to lower tariffs okay. on China. Uh, who's down? The World Health Organization. A 319-page report failed to answer when, where, and how COVID-19 began spreading. And I would recommend that everyone okay. watch the February 2nd Frontline presentation, we China's move. COVID Secrets. Okay, headline next week quickly, Mitch. State lawmakers enjoy spring break before digging into budget details. Donna, headline next week. COVID vaccine becomes available to all adults on April 7th. Joe, headline next week. Nelson Dollar declines to comment on whether he's going to Fort Lauderdale for recess. <laughs> headline next week, Nelson. Happy Easter. Okay. Great job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by... NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.